I figured out who the neighbor around the corner is. Oh, yeah? I like him a lot. Ooh. He lets me talk as much as I want, is very simple, and has great plans. <laughs> okay, I have to meet him. Sure. Say hi. This is Metro PCS. Metro PCS is in your neighborhood. Come say hi and get unlimited data, talk, and text for only $30, period. All on the fast nationwide 4G LTE T-Mobile network. Metro PCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. One gigabyte of high-speed data included. See store for details, terms, and conditions of data management info. Welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Karen Tate, and it's here every week for the last 10 years we've been going about working toward that paradigm shift, creating a new normal for ourselves and society. Yes, it is time to awaken, in the words of our musical artist this week, Alea Deo. Here... Where we, the cognitive minority, are thinking some things need to change, lots of things, as a matter of fact. It's here we discuss the gender inequality, economic disparity, religious oppression, predator corporations and patriarchy, all the stuff that needs to be fixed. We know we have to take responsibility for our own education, start informing ourselves about what's what as we wait for the rest of the world to catch up and wade through the disinformation, the propaganda, the lies that would disempower us and have us living in fear, exploited, not using our critical thinking or not being inclusive or forward thinking. So tonight, uh, I think you'll be very glad to hear the wisdom of my guest, uh, uh, economist Richard Wolf, who we are waiting uh, to uh, see pop up on the switchboard here. Uh, I first learned about Richard Wolf uh, from uh, one of my listeners uh, by the name of Jenny. Uh, then suddenly I was seeing him everywhere. I'm seeing Richard uh, and, and loving it. Uh, he was on PBS, had gave this great talk. Uh, I was riveted to the television. You know, you would think someone talking about, uh, you know, uh, the economy or economics, your eyes would glaze over. But no, he was so incredibly interesting. And then he pops up on the Bill Maher show, one of my favorites, and uh, I said, you know, I have to get this guy. And each time I saw him, uh, vital information uh, he shared that we really need. So you can imagine my delight when he agreed to come on the show and discuss what's uh, ailing our economy and how to fix it. In fact, one of his uh, talks is um, how to cure capitalism. And um, I promise this isn't going to be a conversation about uh, GDP or topics that uh, you know, just seem uh, you know out of reach or beyond your understanding. Uh, you don't need a degree or even a class uh, in economics to know what we're talking about. We're going to make this very clear and relevant. 
And uh, as a bookend to tonight's show, uh, assuming Richard calls in in, uh, pretty soon here, uh, next week, uh, one of our beloved foremothers, uh, the visionary, uh, the queen of the cognitive minority herself, Rianne Eisler, uh, will be returning to the show. Uh, You know she's been here on the show several times over the years. Uh, She's in my latest anthology called Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Change the World. Uh, you know, based on this show, uh, you know, the the book, the anthology uh, has the same name as this show because it's filled with um, my wonderful guests' essays or, in some cases, transcripts of our interview. Uh, Rianne contributed uh, the essay on caring economics to the anthology, showing how caring, instead of exploiting, actually pays off for corporations in the long run as a return on their investment. You know, It's a shame to say we can't expect corporations to do the right thing just because it's the right thing. It has to benefit them. It has to benefit their bottom line or their ROI, as they call it, their return on investment. And she shows that it it really does, and she's going to talk more about that. You know, uh, corporations are able to keep their employees – uh, longer, you know, they don't have to replace them, which means they don't have to waste money training them. You know, employees are more productive, they're more loyal. Uh, lots of other reasons. Um, you know, it's valuable to uh, have your employees like uh, where they work and value their job. So please be sure you listen to us next week. Uh, you know, to dis- well when we discuss her recent work, uh, which is. Um, based on trying to develop other gauges to tell how uh, an economy stacks up, which is vital, especially to women, because so many women aren't getting equal pay or they're living in poverty or they retire in poverty. So um, I want you to sit back and grab a cup of tea and relax. Uh, I promise what we discuss tonight will be very revealing and uh, might even surprise you. Uh, and what I'm going to do, because Richard has not popped up on the switchboard here yet, uh, even though we talked yesterday, I don't know if something came up or this slipped his mind, uh, I am going to put some music on uh, while I try to give his uh, number a call. Maybe he got confused with the time. And I'm going to let you listen to a bit of music while I try to get in touch with him. And uh, if I can't reach him for some reason, well, I will reschedule him because I know he wants to do the show, and I certainly want to have him do the show. And, um, you know, we'll just reschedule him for another time, and I'll come back, uh, and we'll have a a show call with me uh, called uh, This and That, because I do have a lot I've been wanting to share with you. Uh, I just haven't had, uh, you know, a lot of time to do it with all the wonderful guests who uh, I've been bringing you each week. So uh, while I try to reach Richard, why don't you have a listen to Celia? Uh, This is some new music I haven't played yet on the show. Oops, wait, here he is. I don't have to uh, stall any longer. Let me... uh, unmute Richard and say hello. Just one second here. That should happen. Uh, The New York subway system is a little bit uh, troubled. 
<laughs> well, I, I understand. Thank you so much. I was uh, I was a little bit worried. Maybe um, you know you had an emergency or something. But thank you, Richard, for calling in tonight. I was just uh, regaling all of your uh, you know how wonderful uh, your presentations that I've seen on PBS and the Bill Maher show uh, and all of that has been. Um, so thank you for joining us tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'd like to start off with telling listeners uh, who have yet uh, not had the pleasure of seeing you or hearing you, I want to tell them a little bit about all the accomplishments on your bio, and then uh, we'll just jump in and have a chat, if that's okay with you. Perfect. Okay. So, uh, my dear listeners, uh, Professor Richard D. Wolf is with us tonight. Uh, he is uh, a professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, where he taught economics from 73 to 2008. He's currently a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the New School University, New York City. He also teaches classes regularly at the uh, Brecht Forum in Manhattan. Earlier, he taught economics at Yale and at City College uh, of the City University of New York. In 94, he was a visiting professor of, of economics at the University of Paris uh, in France. Um, published works, uh, lots of lots of incredible stuff. Uh, he does speaking uh, engagements as well. Some of his topics include uh, things like uh, economic crisis and socialist strategy, the current economic crisis, origins and consequences. Uh, some of that we're going to get into, as well as democracy at work, a cure for capitalism. Uh, he also has a weekly radio show on WBAI 99.9 FM in New York. Uh, he has a blog that you can subscribe to. Uh, lots of great stuff. I think after you hear him tonight, you're going to become a fan. <clears throat> I just subscribed to his blog myself tonight, and um, uh, as I said earlier, uh, much important information uh, Professor Wolf has for us that um, I think you're going to want to hear. So, um, Richard, is it okay if I call you Richard? Absolutely. Please do. Okay. Well, Richard, I was telling listeners uh, when I was waiting for you to call in that uh, you've had some of the most interesting presentations on PBS, on Bill Moore. I know sometimes when people hear economics, oh, God, their eyes glaze over, but you make it all so interesting. And um, some of the things, uh, you, know, I, that, you know, that I heard, I, I would love for you to share with listeners because, quite frankly, you know, I, don't, I, I, did, I have to admit, I didn't take any economic classes, uh, you know, coming up in school, uh, but I didn't read any of it. I don't recall any of this from history either, and I think it's important that, uh, you know, listeners know uh, some of these things because it affects what's going on today, especially as people like Bernie Sanders, a socialist, is um, trying to introduce himself to the American public. I think people are very confused about what socialist democracy is or social so um, I wondered if uh, you wouldn't mind starting with um, maybe the history of Social Security. Um, you know, how did that come to be? Um, I, I remember you said something about, uh, you know, three different parties, some of which we n no longer even have today. They were the ones putting pressure on the administration to bring us Social Security. Sure, I'd be glad to. 
the uh, the most interesting thing about the American social security system has to do with its birth, with its beginnings. It's actually a product of the Great Depression of the 1930s. Before that depression hit, and maybe I should remind everyone that it happened, it started in 1929, and it reached its uh, deepest bad point in 1933 when there were 25% of the American uh, workforce out of work. Uh, that would make it almost five times worse than the unemployment problem today. Uh, it was a terrible time for the American people. If one out of four workers is out of work, it basically means that every single family either has a mother or a father or a cousin or an uncle or an aunt out of work. And that means they use up the savings if they have any. They then become burdens on others in the family. Uh, whatever the normal tensions of family life are, being unemployed, especially if there's more than one person or if the unemployment lasts, it puts terrible strains on basically all relationships. And at the time, there was no program. There was nothing in the government of the United States to help people who were suffering an unemployment that was in no way their fault. Uh, the economy wasn't working for most people, and the suffering was ac acute. But what was interesting, and what makes it so different from today, is that the American people reacted differently to that economic collapse than they have to the one that happened in 2008 and that is basically still with us. What they did in the 30s was three things that were really interesting. They got angry. They got determined to do something about the economic situation. And most importantly, what they decided to do was not an individual act that each person took, but rather to get together with other people and to form organizations that could collectively take action. And here were the three that they did. The first one was they joined labor unions. More people joined labor unions in the 1930s, millions of Americans, than ever before or than ever since. It was the greatest labor unionizing uh, period of American history. And these were people whose parents had never been in a union, who themselves had never been in a union, but they thought their chances of getting through the horrors of the Great Depression of the 1930s would be better if they were in a union than if they weren't. The second thing people joined was the socialist parties. These were political parties that said that the problem was capitalism as a system and that they were committed to making changes. Their basic idea was that the United States could do better than capitalism, a system that was at that time condemning a quarter of the people to unemployment, no income, all the suffering that goes with it, and the people who were most militant, who felt the strongest about this,
joined not the Socialist Party, but the Communist Party, which took an even stronger position, arguing that the United States needed a revolution to fundamentally change the system. And the really interesting thing was that the Communists and the Socialists and the labor union people, uh, and the labor union movement was much larger than the Socialists and the Communists, but they all worked together. And here's where the explanation of Social Security comes in. They all went together to talk to the president, Franklin Roosevelt, and they basically said to him, you have to help the American people as they go through this awful depression. And we urge you to do that. And the implicit message they had was, if he didn't, then they wouldn't vote for him. And they had millions of people that they uh, had organized, and they could make that threat a reality. And, and Franklin Roosevelt was a smart enough politician that he knew he had to listen to this. The communists added a further message, which is if you don't do something to help the mass of people at a time of such suffering from an economic system, capitalism, that isn't working, then you're basically saying that a revolution is what is necessary. Well, what Roosevelt did is he went back to the corporations and the rich, and he had a meeting with them. And he said to them, look, I just came from a meeting with the unions and the socialists and the communists. He told them what had happened. And he said, I think we have to take this seriously, and we have to do something for the mass of people. But unfortunately, the government of the United States has no money with which to do that. With one quarter of the people out of work, they weren't earning anything, therefore they weren't paying income taxes, they weren't buying goods and services, so they weren't paying sales taxes. To make a long story short, the government had no money. And so Roosevelt said to the corporations and the rich, the only way that we can avoid a revolution the only way that we can keep this society from blowing up is if you, the corporations and the rich, the only ones who have any money in this culture, you have to give me a big chunk of your money that I will use to improve the situation of the mass of people, and that way we'll get through the Great Depression. Now, the corporations and the rich were not happy to hear this. Half of them didn't want to do it, didn't believe the threat, didn't want to accommodate President Roosevelt at all. But the other half of the corporations and the rich, they did believe him. They were, in fact, afraid that if they didn't give this president the money with which to take care of the people, there would be fundamental social change in the United States, and they might well end up no longer being rich people, no longer being in charge of the enterprises and the business. So they went along, and that's all Roosevelt needed. He went back to the unions, the communists, and the socialists, and he said, okay, we got a deal. I'm going to get the money from corporations and the rich by taxing them, and I'm going to use the money to help the mass of the American people I will do that, but you've got to stop talking about revolution. You've got to stop talking about uh, socialism, all of that stuff. If you do that, we have a deal. 
Well, the unions, the socialists, and the communists, they agreed. They bought the deal. They took it. And Roosevelt was true to his word. He got on the radio, because there was no TV at that time. He got on the radio, and the first big announcement he made was the establishment of the social security system. In the midst of a depression, when every working family was in terrible trouble, was looking at an impossibility of taking care of the elderly. <clears throat> in that moment, Roosevelt says, you don't have to worry about that. The United States government will now give to every American citizen 65 years of age or older a monthly Social Security check for the rest of his or her life. We will take care, not just of the old people in this way, but of their children, the young people, who will not now have to worry about taking care of their elderly at a time when they were barely scraping by themselves. So that's how Social Security was born, as a kind of combined result of the pressure on the government from below, from that coalition of unions, socialists, and communists. So, Richard, um, you know, unions have been decimated. Uh, you know, to hear so many people out there in the media, uh, obviously, you know, they they demonize socialism. Of course, they say communism is bad. Um, how did how did capitalism come to become uh, so revered, considering how predatory it is, especially now? Well, immediately. It really follows from what I said a, a couple of minutes ago. Um, the, the corporations and the rich, they went along with what Roosevelt did. I mean, just to give you an idea, in 1944, towards the end of Roosevelt's time as president, he raised the taxes on corporations much, much higher than it is today. He raised the highest tax rate on the richest people much, much higher than it is today. And they weren't happy about this. Those who went along did it because they feared even worse would happen to them if they didn't. And those who didn't believe that worse would happen were simply outraged by being taxed uh, to take care of people uh, other than themselves, whom they often viewed as being deadbeats or incompetence or moochers or whatever else you might think of. So when Roosevelt died in 1945, when the Depression was over because everybody went back to work uh, to produce the guns and tanks for World War II, that was the time when the business community and the rich decided they could, they would, and they should undo what Roosevelt had done. Roosevelt's program, the, the Social Security and so on, was called the New Deal. So they went to work to undo the New Deal. And the corporations and the rich were not stupid. They knew that the problem wasn't Roosevelt. They knew the problem was the pressure on Roosevelt from below, from that coalition of communists, socialists, and unionists. So they decided to destroy that coalition. 
They began in the middle to later 1940s by saying that communists were not militant exponents of social change in America. No, no. They were instead evil agents of a foreign power in that time, the Soviet Union. They demonized them, they arrested them, uh, they executed the Rosenbergs as spies. They really carried out a program of terrorizing the American people that communists were the worst conceivable uh, double agents, if you like, of, uh, of a foreign country. As soon as they had destroyed the Communist Party, the weakest link of the coalition, they went after the socialists and basically said that socialists are just like communists, they just spell it differently. And when they were done destroying the socialist parties, which is, by the way, why today the communist and socialist parties are tiny, uh, politically uninfluential uh, institutions in the United States, they barely exist. And when they were done, they went to work uh, successfully, I might say, to reduce the labor movement, as you quite rightly said, um, in a 50-year uninterrupted decline from the 1950s right through to this moment that we're speaking. So there's nothing accidental. It's not so much that capitalism got to be revered. It's really more correct to say that the opponents of capitalism, the communists and the socialists, were demonized, were destroyed, were literally hounded out of their jobs, out of their uh, incomes, and so on. And the American people were taught a lesson which we're just emerging from now. And that lesson is be very careful before you get involved in any kind of left-wing-sounding political party, uh, social organization, trade union, and that, that fear, that kind of taboo on collective uh, action for social change settled deep into the consciousness of the American people. You know, for every socialist or communist uh, hounded out of his or her job, there were 200 co-workers who saw what happened who learned to keep their mouths shut, not to let their minds, let alone their bodies, go anywhere near uh, what they were seeing as being a one-way trip to economic and political disaster. And that taboo has meant that we haven't had an open and honest discussion about capitalism as compared to socialism for the last half century. It's only now with the remarkable courage of Bernie Sanders to come forward and say, I am a politician, I believe socialism is the way to go, and I'm going to run around the country and see whether people uh, find what I have to say persuasive. He's the first politician on a national level to really do that uh, in half a century. That's how deep the demonization of the left happened, and that's why Americans don't know much about socialism, because it has been simply too personally dangerous for people to talk about it other than to dismiss it. 
Well, and and I hear you saying that, and I know it. I feel it. You know, um, you, you can you know kind of uh, hear those ideas or, uh, you know, talking about Bernie Sanders or socialism, you can tell there's discomfort and awkwardness about it, you know, even just hearing, hearing the pundits on television. And I guess, you know, I'm a logical person and, and I, and I've listened very carefully to everything you say, but I, I still find it hard to understand how so many people can vote against their economic interests. You know, I mean, here we see people who have voted for Republicans over and over and over and over again when, you know, they just support people who exploit workers. Um, you know, it's like there's a cognitive, you know, a dissonance or something. Right. Um, you know, what am I missing? I mean, am I missing something? Is it just, is there a disconnect? Um, uh, yeah, I think that for many Americans, look, I'm a professor of economics. I've spent all my adult life trying to explain to people how the banks work, how a corporation works, why it's important if the Federal Reserve raises or lowers interest rates, all the things that make an economy function in a certain way. And to be very honest with you, I have to tell you that the American people as a whole are very economically um, underdeveloped in terms of what they understand. The young people coming out of high schools that come to colleges and sit in the classrooms where I and other teachers of economics try to explain things are constantly confronted with uh, students who don't really have a clue. Now, these are perfectly smart young men and women. Their mental capability is not a problem. They're as smart as anyone else anywhere in the world. So it's not intelligence and it's not capability. But the reality is nobody has ever sat down and worked out with them in a classroom, in a church, at home, or anywhere else, a kind of honest discussion of how economies work, what the virtues and strengths are of our system, what the virtues and strengths and weaknesses are of other systems, the kind of thing that, a, that anyone would know is a reasonable educational process simply isn't done uh, in economics. And the end result is our people really don't know. And so when someone stands up, and says something that sounds reasonable, that sounds fair-minded, they don't have the capability uh, to be critical, to to think for themselves, to weigh what is being said, to ask questions of a sort that would allow them to make a reasonable determination as to whether what they're being told is true or not. And so what what that leads to is the The point of view that is most widely believed is not the one that withstands scrutiny, is not the one that is validated by what people have learned, because they haven't learned very much about economics. The the point of view that prevails is the one that is repeated the most often in the most radio programs, TV programs, newspaper articles, etc. And what that means is that whoever has the most money 
to get his or her message out there over and over again is the one who wins the game. This isn't a recipe for honesty or real evaluation, but it's a way to make sure that the people with the money get the chance to put out a perspective that people will believe is the reasonable and maybe even the only way to think. And so, yes, they'll vote for something which, in fact, is a perspective that is a kind of veneer, a kind of cover for the very problems they have, but in their way of thinking, they see this as something very different because they haven't been given the tools to see through that. That's changing, but that's been the way it's been for quite a while. So I, I mean I'm familiar with the idea that like you know the people you know the people in Texas who control the books you know right. they have their bent and I know people like the Koch brothers are giving colleges money and want influence over the types of professors that are hired. Is it a failure too of acad- of academia to not really prepare? Um, students to be good citizens, to understand this kind of thing? Absolutely. And let me be real clear in in underscoring the wisdom of what you've just said. And I say this as I say, I've been a professor of economics all my adult life. I am an academic. I'm part of the academic community. But I have to tell you that we are complicit We are guilty. We, as a profession, um, have not done the job we could have and we should have. But I need to explain to you why that was and why that is now changing. And let me just mention that, and I don't say this in, in order to pat myself on the back, but just to make it clear that I am telling you something as a, as a graduate of the, of the best universities the United States has. I went to Harvard as an undergraduate. I got my master's degree in economics at Stanford University in California, and I finished and got my Ph.D. at Yale University. So I'm like a poster boy for the elite education of the United States. And I am telling you that my profession of economists has, for the last 50 years, and I've been a graduate student or a teacher for all of those 50 years, that for those 50 years, we as a profession were afraid to say one positive word about socialism. And we were afraid to say anything basically critical about capitalism. And the reason was to do that, to do either of those things, was a self-destructive act to your own political career as a professor. You would have no career. You would jeopardize your job. You would uh, make uh, book publishers and journals uh, inclined not to accept your work for publication, which in turn would damage your uh, professional standing and your career. Um, To make a a long story short, unless you were driven to self-destructiveness, to shooting yourself in the proverbial foot, you would not go in that direction. Well, if a whole generation of professors is afraid to look at that material, to read those books, to explore that material, to write those books, then you're going to have what we have in America, a generation of people who thought that, and who still think, that what you do about capitalism 
is you cheer about it. That the right. discussion of capitalism is, you know, cheerleaders, everybody outdoing everybody else for how it's the greatest and the best and the most efficient and all the rest of that stuff, because you do not know, and you have a gut sense it's not smart to say anything else. Right, right. You never, yeah, you never I'm, talk I'm about ashamed the victims. Frankly, I think our profession should hang its head in shame that it behaved that way, that it right. it, it, it didn't perform the obligation of an academic mind, which is to ask the tough questions and to pursue answers that you think are logical, that have evidence behind them, and to, and to have honest debates. Reasonable people can disagree. I have no problem whatsoever with people deciding that capitalism is wonderful and that they support it and that they think it's the best. That's fine. But an education means that alongside of such people, you also provide a place for people who think that capitalism isn't the best thing, who think that human beings can and should do better than capitalism, who offer criticisms of capitalism and alternatives to it, because only then, by having all of that part of a, an intelligent American's education, Will they be in a position to critically evaluate what anybody, left or right, offers them as a platform to vote for or a candidate to follow or a program to, to support? Right. Well, and, 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 I mean, yeah, nobody ever talks about the victims of capitalism, you know. Right. And, and, and I know my listeners understand this about academia because, you know, a lot of them are, are know about women's studies. There's certain exactly. places you can go and certain things you have to agree with academia or you lose, you'll never get tenure or you'll, you'll right. lose your job or, and, oh, please don't ever mention the P word, patriarchy, because right. that just makes people's eyes glaze over, you know. I mean, it's right, like look how the... hard exactly. Look how hard it was. How many years, uh, particularly women, had to fight in the university to even get words like patriarchy to be taken seriously, even to, to the minimal extent that students would learn what the concept meant to ask, be able to ask themselves the question whether they live in a patriarchy, whether their family was organized in a patriarchal way. It's the same thing with critics of capitalism. You, in order to have a conversation of, uh, about capitalism as opposed to the alternative of socialism, for example, you have to teach people what these two systems are, teach them how to evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of both of them in order to have an intelligent conversation about what you believe, what you think is the best way forward, etc., etc. We didn't do that. For 50 years... We did not dare, as a people, to go there. And that wasn't because the issue is resolved. That wasn't because the, the discussion is over, the answer is universally agreed to. None of that's true. That's why, to the surprise of everyone, Bernie Sanders, a socialist, shows the American people that millions and millions of your fellow citizens are perfectly willing to go and listen to what Sanders has to say. It's not a question of whether they agree or not, but they're not willing to dismiss this 
which is precisely what, for 50 years, was the requirement of anybody who wanted to have a reasonable life, an income, a job, and so on. Right, right. Well, um, well, let's let's go there. You know, let's talk about uh, socialism and a so and what a socialist democracy is. You know, for some listeners who you know may be afraid to consider Bernie, I would imagine you know most of the people who probably listen to my show, they're either going to make up their mind between Bernie or Hillary. I can't right. imagine they're going to go. You know, they're they're going <laughs> to yeah. go right. But you know, tell you know, speak to what socialism is, and uh, you know what's the disinformation out there and and don't we already have socialist programs we just you know haven't called them that well it's a complicated area and in a short conversation important as it is to have this conversation but in a short com- uh, conversation you really can't do justice so i want everyone to understand i'm going to answer your question But you really have got to do a little bit of work to be a responsible citizen in this day and age and teach yourself or acquaint yourself or learn uh, that this is an enormous topic. So let me begin. First of all, socialism means different things to different people, and it always has. Socialism is not a static thing. It's not something that gets a definition in 1900 and that that never changes and that everybody agrees on what it means and what it has always meant. It just doesn't work like that. By the way, that's true of capitalism, too. Capitalism today is not what it was 50 or 100 or 200 years ago. Capitalism today in Brazil is not what capitalism is in the United States or in Norway or in India, etc., etc. So... You really do have to have some sense that this is a big and complicated topic. What and Richard, be- wait, and, and Richard, Richard, before you, you know, yeah. before you dive into that, why, if, if possible, why don't you give us the five-minute version? Because okay. I do want to save time to get into. You know, I, I know you talked about the United States, you know, having a mature economy and, uh, you know, it would, you know, we can look for in the future and employ business, you know, employee-run businesses or should be the way of the future. I want to get have saved time to get Good. into some of that, too. So, um, Will do. Yes, yeah, so, so try to just hit the high points if you can. All right. For most of the period from, say, 1850 to 1950, so that that hundred years, socialism meant to most people that instead of having private enterprises owned and operated by individuals, the government would do that. And the idea of socialists was the government represents all of the people in a society, and if you want the economy to work for all of the people, that an agency of all of the people should run it, should make the decisions. So socialists in general believed you had a better outcome economically if the government owned and operated enterprises than if private individuals did, because if private individuals did, they would make economic decisions to benefit themselves, even if it hurt the majority of people, whereas the government, being elected by everybody, wouldn't do that. And the second idea of traditional socialism was that you shouldn't uh, allow a market to distribute goods and services. The way a market works is if there's something that's scarce, if there's not enough ice cream to go around or not enough oil to go around, what happens is all the people bid 
people who want this stuff bid uh, in order to get it. And slowly the price rises, and that makes it impossible for those who don't have enough money to get it. And in the end, the price keeps rising until you just have enough people with enough money to pay the high price, and that's what it'll be. Uh, the market distributes output according to the capacity people have to pay for it, to afford mm -hmm. it. And the socialists always said that is immoral and unethical. Why should we distribute goods and services according to how much money you may have inherited from your uncle, how much money you may have stolen from children, how much money you even made by your work? That's only one factor to consider. What about people's needs? What about the conditions of the community that might dictate giving more to this one than to that one, etc.? So socialists believe, again, that the community as a whole, probably the government, should distribute goods according to a plan of what people need rather than to allow the market, which in the end panders to those who are the richest and therefore able to pay the high prices at the expense of everybody else. So the tradition of socialism was, instead of private enterprise, government enterprise, and instead of markets, government planning. The problem was that when socialists made revolutions, particularly in the two key countries, the Soviet Union in 1917 and the People's Republic of China in 1949, they did, in fact, do what socialists said. They gave the government control of the economy, both the distribution of goods and the owning and operating of enterprises. And the bad result was that the government had way too much power. If you give the government that much power economically, you take the risk that it will become dictatorial politically. That happened under Stalin in Russia, and it happened in China as well, to different degrees. And so socialists, capable of self-criticism, made the conclusion, and again I'm being simple here, but we don't have enough time, the socialists made the conclusion you have to learn from the mistakes of the socialists in Russia and China. And the way to do that is to say that socialism isn't about the government taking over. What it is, and that's what you're going to hear more and more of in the years ahead, socialism is different from capitalism, not in terms of the government, but instead in a radical reorganization of factories, offices, and stores, of enterprises. And here's the basic idea. Instead of the businesses of every economy being run by a very small minority of people, those who own the big blocks of shares and the boards of directors that they elect to run a corporation, a tiny minority of the people involved in an economy, instead of that, which is how enterprises in capitalism work, instead of that, a socialist enterprise is like a workers' cooperative. It means that democracy inside the enterprise is how we're going to run them. The enterprise will be owned collectively by the workers who work at it, and all the decisions now made by a tiny minority of people who run businesses will in instead be made democratically by all of the people working in them. And the basic idea is a transition from one kind of enterprise to the other. And notice there's nothing here about the government. A transition from 
uh, capitalist, hierarchical, top-down corporations to worker co-ops democratically run, that that's what socialism is going to mean in the 21st century. But Richard, that it seems, it, and I know I, when I heard you talk about, uh, you know, the United States economy has matured, and we couldn't. Ex- it, and if I misspeak here, please, you know, feel free to correct me. Um, I, I think I heard you say that the, you know, we have to face the fact that, you know. Uh, all the growth is going to be happening in these countries where they basically pay their people slave wages. That's right. where all the corporations are going to go. So the United States economy is called a mature economy, so we don't have any other choice but to go to these employee-run businesses. But isn't that transition to that, that's going to be a long haul, isn't it? I mean, that's a real long-term type plan uh, to, you know, to shift everything like that. Um, what do we do in the meantime? I mean, can we well, restore let, the... Let me, let me Let me quarrel just a touch with you. Um, okay. And I'll, I'll do it rather than by speculating abstractly about how long it might take. Let me give you this, the very brief thumbnail history of what is arguably the most successful transition uh, of our time. In 1956, which is, after all, not the age of the dinosaurs, it's not that far back, in 1956, a very famous Roman Catholic priest named Father Arismendi in the north of Spain, very, very poor part of Spain in the shadow of the Pyrenees Mountains, said to his very, very poor parishioners, look, if we wait for some capitalist, some employer, to come down here and give us a job, we will all die of old age before that happens. So the way to, to give ourselves employment is that we have to play both roles. We have to be both the workers who do the work and the employer who hires ourselves. In other words, we have to set up a worker co-op. They did so, six workers and this Roman Catholic priest. So now, over the last 50 years, what happened? This is now called, the same enterprise, grew. It's called the Mondragon Corporation, the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation, named after the town of Mondragon in the north of Spain. It has roughly 100,000 workers. It is the seventh largest corporation in all of Spain. It is, in fact, a family of about 250 uh, individual worker cooperatives. They made the transition. They competed over these last 50 years with many capitalistically organized enterprises, and in that competition, they won, that is, the Mondragon co-ops won, and the capitalist enterprises lost. They weren't efficient enough to win the competition. They have proven that you can make the transition, that a cooperative enterprise can grow, that it can grow from six workers to 100,000 in 50 years. And that's all by itself with no help from anybody. And if we now undertook to make that transition on a more determined basis, and not in an isolated situation in a poor part of a not-that-rich country in the first place, if we gave it the support of governmental uh, encouragement and incentives, 
we could do much bigger things in even shorter amount of time. In short, it's a doable thing if we want to do it. That's the key question. The political will of the American people, or for that matter, other people, if it moves in that direction, getting the thing done in practice will be easy. It's the political commitment to do it that's the number one order of business now. So, Richard, what do you think the problem is with the American people? You know, you talked about earlier in, in our history, you know, there was the will uh, of these people to create the labor, socialist, communist parties. You know, why is, you know, with this biggest income disparity we've had uh, in decades, you know, where, why do you think that there's not more will among the people to, you know, make these kinds of changes or, you know, be marching in the street or, uh, you know, stop voting against their economic right. interest. What's, you know, what's the difference now? Well, I think, again, that actual history will give us the answer. If you look at the working people of Europe right now, workers in Italy, in Spain, in Greece, in Portugal, uh, in Britain, in Ireland, and so on, you will very quickly see that over the last six or seven years, they have had general strikes, they have had massive demonstrations. In two countries, they have voted socialists and communists into power. Greece is one, and two weeks ago, the people of Portugal made the same decision. You are seeing action in the streets, action in the ballot box. So it's not that it isn't happening, but it's not happening in the United States. And that's, I think, for two reasons that we've already discussed. Number one, it was the savage repression of the socialists and communists and unions in the United States. In Europe, the business community tried but failed to do that. Every single European country has big communist and socialist parties. The government of France today is a government of the socialist party. The government of Germany, the strongest country, is a coalition between a conservative party and the German socialist party. That does not, that's not conceivable in the United States, but it's the norm in Europe because the repression we talked about didn't happen. The second reason is also what we talked about. Americans don't know what the alternatives are. I travel around the United States explaining to people, for example, the history of the Mondragon Corporation that I just summarized for you. To be honest, I would say roughly 90% of the audiences to whom I present this story sit there listening with their mouths hanging open, hearing about all of this for the first time. When I explain to them that this successful Mondragon Corporation has the following two characteristics, they look at me as if I, I was shocking them with some horrible story. I tell them, number one, that the, the, in, in a Mondragon co-op, the managers do not hire and fire the workers. It's exactly the other way around. Every year, the workers get together and vote on whether or not the managers keep their jobs. Number two, they have decided in the Mondragon Corporation that the highest paid worker cannot have more than eight times the income of the lowest paid workers. 
By contrast, here in the United States, CEOs of our larger corporations get roughly 300 times what the lowest paid worker in their company uh, gets. I, I, I go over this. With, I tell them that Mondragon is so successful as a co-op that it set up its own laboratories to do advanced research, and that the research they do in this Mondragon co-op, this socialist operation, is so successful that two well-known American corporations have paid Mondragon to permit their scientists to work in the Mondragon laboratories alongside the Mondragon scientists. And the two American corporations are General Motors and Microsoft. When I'm done, people just stare at me in a kind of silence by which they reveal that 50 years of taboo of discussing these topics means not that they don't want an alternative, but they have literally been kept away from any systematic understanding, discussion of what the actual alternatives are. Well, yeah. I mean, it's amazing when I still watch, you know, uh, in the media, Facebook, uh, you know, television, uh, that, that uh, you know, people still don't get it that trickle-down doesn't work. You know, right. I mean, they're, they're confronted with actual facts, and they're suspicious, I think, of the facts. You know, they think, oh, it's just a liberal plot or something. You know, yes. they, they can't possibly believe it. Um, uh, I mean, let me throw an example at you, too, that sort of blew my mind. Over the last year, that's this year, 2015, it was revealed that the General Motors Corporation, one of our biggest and most successful automobile companies, had for many years known that the ignitions in, in their cars, in millions of their cars, were malfunctioning, were not safe had caused accidents and deaths, all of which has now been documented, and now, after much uh, public exposure, General Motors has admitted most of this. Okay, uh, in a rational society, one that hadn't been bamboozled for 50 years, the following argument would immediately come up. If we have private corporations whose pursuit of profit carries to the point that they are willing and able to threaten the health and well-being, even the very lives of their customers to make money, and that when they discover it, they lie about it, they hide it, and only when exposed by others do they finally admit it, we ought to have a conversation about whether we as a society ought to allow private profit-driven interests to govern our enterprises. Right. We heard a few months later that another car company, the German Volkswagen company, had similarly installed in their cars devices specifically organized to fool the government agencies that test for uh, emissions of bad uh, chemicals in order to get false readings so that they could make more money selling cars, etc. And it, I could go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. uh, but we don't say in our country, gee, there's an alternative. We don't have to have companies run by small, profit-driven, self-serving elites. We could have car companies 
or banks or oil companies or anybody else run by democratically organized groups of workers on the one hand, customers on the other, who have to know what's going on and who by their numbers and by their debates will be able to uncover, to debate, to discuss, to expose any decisions that are questionable in anyone's mind, that that's a better way to make sure that the company is not as abusive as the capitalistically organized businesses have shown themselves to be. But we don't do that in this country. It's a taboo. You can't go there. So all we ever do is establish a commission to look into it, establish a government review board, which these companies quickly learn how to control so that it's all rubber stamped, that's why every government agency checking into the, the VW cars managed not to notice what they were doing for nine years, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's why people who are critical are now saying, it's enough of this silliness. We have to question the system since the system is malfunctioning for everybody who isn't on the profit end in so massive a way. Well, and what you're making me think about, too, is when the unions were strong, I, I, I'm imagining, I mean, I never actually worked for a union, but I can imagine that maybe in those circumstances the employees were more participatory. They knew more about what was going on because, you know, they – communicated with the union who communicated with the corporation well now the unions are gone so we have all of these power totally powerless employees and i mean i can remember when i first entered the workforce i mean it was like the end of the 70s beginning of the 80s even when i was a secretary i had you know uh, benefits you know i had sick leave i had ins- you know medical insurance and now a couple decades later most people don't have anything or they work 39 hours a week so that corporations can get away with paying them no benefits whatsoever and right. we've allo- allowed this chipping away chipping away chipping away of of everything and, you know, till we're left totally powerless, I mean, most people, I mean, I, I guess I'm Absol- saying. I mean, oh, absolutely. And I, I again, here I, you can see that I'm an academic. In our political science <clears throat> courses at the high school level, at the college level, we love to teach our students about the wisdom of the founding fathers of the United States to establish something called a system of checks and balances. And the the great illustration is that the executive branch, you know, the president uh, is checked and balanced by the Congress, and both the Congress and the president are checked and balanced by the Supreme Court, and that we, we don't want too much power in any one place. But if you get rid of the political parties of working people, socialist and communist, and if you decimate the unions, you're doing exactly what our founding fathers argued against. You're doing away with the counterbalancing powers. There is no checks and balances. The corporations have all the money. They use it to control the political system uh, to a degree we have never seen before. It's practically impossible to run for president if you either aren't a billionaire or supported by people who are billionaires, etc., etc. 
So we claim to be in favor of checks and balances, but we have allowed in our economic system for the checks and balances to be destroyed by one remaining power player, the corporation, and we act as though we haven't any idea what to do. Well, to set up worker co-ops is to recognize that in giving working people back the power that they lost, that whoever makes the decisions in the corporation is going to be checked and balanced by all of the workers there and all of the customers who depend on the company. We're actually doing something along the lines of checks and balances to offset an, a capitalist system that has done away with that. So how do you see that starting to take hold here in the, in the United States? What are the chances? I mean, what's the perfect storm of things that have to come together for that to start to become a trend? Well, I think the, the storm is already upon us. Uh, and let me tell you why I say that. The biggest recruiter these days of critics of capitalism is capitalism itself. The way capitalism is functioning here in the United States, and this is true in Europe and Japan as well, is generating a growing army of critics. I'll just give you a couple of examples. We now have here in the United States the first generation of students, college and university students, who cannot get a degree in most cases without accumulating tens of thousands of dollars of debt. The reality for our young people is this. The bachelor's degree that you get after four years of college is less of a ticket to a good job and a good income than it ever was in our history. And yet, at the same time, it costs more to get this less valuable degree than it ever did in our history, so much, in fact, that you have to go into debt to get it. This is an unsustainable absurdity. Polls of our young people indicate that upwards of 40% believe they cannot and will not pay back their student loans in their lifetime. These people are learning that this is a system that doesn't work for them. They were promised as young people that if they worked hard, studied hard, kept their nose to the grindstone, etc., etc., they would succeed. They're being shown that in this system that promise is not being kept. And they are upset, they are desperate, and it is, no, it is not at all surprising that a growing number of them are able to say, this isn't the problem of my particular college, and it isn't the fault of my particular family. This is a social process. This is a social problem, and I'm not going to solve it or escape it as an individual. A social problem needs a social movement to be solved, and they become critics of the system that isn't working for them. And that's why people like Bernie have an audience. That's why people like me have an audience. I'm not saying stuff that I didn't say 10 years ago. But 10 years ago, I had a few small audiences. 
Now I speak to five, six hundred people at a time. I give speeches twice a month in different cities across the United States. I haven't changed. It's the American people that have changed. They now know that things are not working well. They don't anymore believe, at least growing numbers of them don't, that we're ever going to get back to where the where things were. And they want to know why. And they want to know how this happened. And they're willing to listen and consider alternative systems, alternative ways to get those systems. So I am very confident that this doesn't depend what's going on on my persuasiveness or that of anybody else, Bernie Sanders included, because what's driving the criticism of this system is the dysfunctionality of the system itself, and that's a process that will continue since there's nothing going on that I can point to as a professional economist that's changing this. The fact, okay. that the fact that unemployment is going down in America doesn't change it because we have millions of people that have dropped out of the labor force. And as you correctly point out to, many of the people's, the, of the jobs lost after 2008 were jobs with benefits, jobs with security, jobs with a future. And the people lucky enough to have any job now discover that it's a job with lousy pay, with little or no benefits, and the most uncertain future imaginable. Right, right. Well, let me ask you about two other things, and, and tell me if these are any, if either of these offer us any hope in the short term. Do you see any sort of resurgence of unions? And this other idea that I'm hearing people talk about, I think maybe they do it in some of the Scandinavian countries or some form of it, because of the income disparity, because there's no good-paying jobs anymore, because of you know the influx of robotics and jobs just disappearing because machines are doing it now, that people will just have uh, a stipend. Uh, that's automatically paid to them so that, you know, they're guaranteed some income. Well, let me take both of those questions quickly, one after the other. I don't think the question is whether unions will come back. I think that depends on whether the unions are prepared to do something which is admittedly very difficult. The unions have been declining in America for 50 years. Part of the explanation is that they have been attacked and undermined by the business community very successfully, and that the business community has also been able to use the government against them a good bit of the time. That's true. But it's not the whole story. The unions themselves have to be able to ask themselves the question whether their own strategies, whether their own procedures, whether their own organizations have contributed also to their decline. I am personally convinced that they did, and that if they don't change, if they don't do some self-criticism, serious self-criticism of the sort that I don't see very often, and I'm looking for it, if they don't do that self-criticism and change their tactics, then I don't believe their decline is going to stop because the people who don't like them and who are pushing for their decline are certainly continuing to do so. And if you were to ask me, well, what do they have to do? Well, here's one, just to give you an idea, here's one idea. One of the biggest causes of unions' decline is the following. 
the employer comes to the workers one day and says, look, I'm really sorry to have to tell you this, but I'm competing with other companies that have left the United States uh, and moved to China or India or Brazil, where the wages are much lower. I'm afraid I'm going to have to close the factory or close the office or close the store in order to go over there. Now, of course, I might not do it if you, you workers here in America, were to accept lower wages, fewer benefits, if you were to make it worth my while as employer to stay here by offering me lower wage bill, then I wouldn't have to leave. The poor union then goes to the workers, tells them what they've been told, and then they beg and they get down on their knees and ask, please, if the uh, employer would accept not as terrible givebacks, they're called, as, as he asked for, and still stick around. This is a recipe for the union then settling for a poorer contract next time than this time, accepting wage cuts, benefit cuts, less job security, and so on. Therefore, of course, sending a message to workers that being in a union is not a safe thing to do, is not a way to get better conditions, that their unions are in fact powerless, it seems, to do anything about this long-term decline. Well, if I were advising the union, I would say the following. The next time an employer comes and tells you, surprise him. Say to the employer something like this, have a nice trip. We wish you every success in moving to China, India, or Brazil. But here's what we're going to do. The minute you leave, we, the workers here, are going to take over this enterprise. We're going to run it as a worker co-op. We're going to get support from local politicians because we're going to say to them, dear Mr. Politician, we are prepared to keep the jobs here. That will give income to people here. That will mean they will pay taxes to keep this community going. If you want to be a successful politician, you will help us. If you don't help us, this place will close, people will suffer unemployment, less money will be paid to the community, and we will point the finger of blame at you, dear Mr. Politician, and you won't get elected to dog catcher ever again. Guess what? The politicians will help. Guess what else? The corporation now has a new problem. If it leaves and goes to China, it's going to have a competitor here in the United States. Because the workers who keep that business going as a worker co-op will run around the United States saying to clients and customers, look, you can buy from the company that deserted America and went to China. Or you can buy from us, the workers who kept the jobs here, who sustained the community by doing that, and we urge you to help us as you will one day ask us to help you. The capitalist enterprise that was planning to go to China is going to think long and hard before they now go because the unions have come up with a radical, new, different strategy. And given how poorly the old strategy of collective bargaining worked over the last 50 years, my advice to unions is, why don't you give this or other new ideas a try? You have very little more you could use uh, lose 
So I think that's a fundamental way to rethink what unions are, what they do. Instead of just bargaining with your employer, become the alternative to the employer. It changes the entire dynamic and relationship between workers and unions on the one hand and capitalist employers on the other. That sounds pretty good. And, you know, it, it, it would require you know, the union and employees to kind of grow a backbone. You know, That's right. And, and you know, take and, some and, chances. But, again, after 50 years of, of a strategy that they have stayed with, bargaining collectively, that has not reversed their decline, has not strengthened them, has made them weaker and weaker. Let me give your listeners a fundamental statistic. Right now in the United States, by far the largest sector in our economy is called the private sector. That is, individuals who work for a private employer. That's a much larger part of our economy than the public sector, where individuals work for a local state or federal government. In the private sector, the dominant part of our economy, 6.8% of employees are members of a union or represented by a union. Over 93% of private sector workers in America have no union. That's the reality. The next time some politician you're listening to tells you about the problem of powerful corporations on the one hand and powerful unions on the other, you're listening to somebody who's either a liar or an ignoramus because we don't have that anymore. We probably never did. But today, when 93% of workers have no union, you're not talking about a situation that is in any remote way uh, capable of being described as powerful unions. And therefore, I think the unions have to make fundamental self-criticism, change of strategy and tactics to have any chance, once again, uh, to become a powerful, meaningful institution in our, in our culture. Well, and it makes me think about the that that's also a problem for the Democratic Party because they so rely on on union money. Uh, I mean, as that dwindles, uh, it, it's kind of scary that, uh, and, and, you know, with Citizens United and everything, you know, will the Democrats continue to have enough money to compete uh, against Republicans? I mean, that's not to say the Democrats, you know, haven't gone corporatist, too. I mean, I, I understand yeah, that. That, that. That really is the answer. I mean, the, the unions understand your question all too well. They see the shrinking relevance of unions, the shrinking budgets unions have, coupled with the growing budgets that, that corporations have, and they've made their decision. Uh, they still want the union money, but they know that if they're going to survive, they have to go out and get the money of the, big, the wealthy and the big businesses, and they've proven themselves willing and able to do it, Otherwise, they would have disappeared politically, uh, given, given the preponderance of money uh, that is now so clearly in evidence in our, in our political structure. And I don't see that changing. That's why, you know, people who are cynics refer to the Republicans and Democratic parties as the two wings of the party of capitalism. 
and there right. is no other party, and they just fight over the details and the nuances because neither of them can dare to question capitalism because that would dry up the funds which would make them incapable of, of, of contesting politically. Well, and maybe you just answered, uh, you know, what was going to be my final question. I still want to hear about the stipend idea, right. but um, I was going to ask you if you thought, it, is, is there anything in her history or in her current platform that would lead you to think that any of Hillary's programs might lead us in this direction to help us have more employee-owned businesses and fight this, you know, capitalist uh, beast? No, that nothing in her history, at least uh, for the for the last ten or fifteen years. I'm not that familiar with her history before that, but her her time in the public light has been never uh, interested in these subjects, and moving to the right more or less with the rest of the country. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Clinton seem to me to be folks with their fingers in the air always testing which way the prevailing wind is blowing from the media and from the polls and being guided by that. Let me right. say a word in conclusion about the uh, stipends. There really are two, two countries right now that have seriously uh, discussed this. One is Switzerland and one is Finland, two European countries. They have both... Um, the Swiss did it last year. The Finns are in the process of doing it now. They have gone to their people with a referendum asking whether they would like there to be a basic minimum income that is guaranteed to every citizen, whether he or she is working or not. Um, whatever their income is, they're going to get this certain minimum amount of money. And in Switzerland, I believe it was $38,000 a year, so it's a significant amount of money. Uh, the Finnish, I think, is a, the Finnish proposal uh, is for even more money. Part of the reason for this is these, these countries, like the United States, have now created such a cataclysmic mess of government programs, each of which spends huge amounts of money sustaining bureaucracies to monitor, to distribute, to control this or that program, food stamps, housing vouchers, rent subsidies, you name it, um, that it becomes clear when an accountant sits down that they could help the average person with more money at less cost to the taxpayer by just giving everybody a lump sum because of the savings in money to administer, control all these competing programs. But the second part is what you say, that in a society in which you have such wealth at the top producing such tensions with the people denied wealth put into economic difficulty some more some less that you're building a level of anger resentment envy that will eventually explode the society so that it is safer is the old argument, like in the Great Depression that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, it becomes safer for the richest people in places like Switzerland and Finland, and they have very rich people at the top of their society. It's safer for them to hold on to most of their wealth and pay a huge tax to give everybody a minimum income 
than to try to hold on to all of it themselves and produce a seething mass of dangerously oppositional people next door to them in this society. And that, in the end, may persuade them to support this. So far, they haven't, but there is no question a strong current in Europe to do that. I see. Well, you can only build your walls so high. <laughs> exactly. And your gated well, Rick, community is still a community surrounded by all the people who are looking through the holes in that gate. And your security guards, too. That's right. And who knows which way they will go when, when the day of judgment comes. Exactly. Well, Richard, I really appreciate your time tonight. I know we ran a little bit long, and it's late where you are, so I'm doubly appreciative of, uh, well, listen, of your generosity. Pleasure, and I really do want to thank you and, and say to your listeners, because you're probably too modest, that having the courage to raise these questions, to openly discuss them on the air, you are doing an enormously important task to compensate for, to correct for the 50 years when as a nation we were too afraid to discuss these issues, setting us back in terms of solving our problems uh, that we're only now catching up to, and it's programs like yours that make it possible. So I, am, I appreciate your program, I appreciate the invitation, and I wish you every success and in the future would be glad to talk with you again. Okay, well, I may, just may take you up on that. And would you mind just telling listeners uh, your website or how they subscribe to your newsletter or you know how they can sure. keep up it's with very, you, Richard? Very, we maintain two websites, either or both of which allow you to sign up for our free newsletter, to click on an icon, and you can become connected to us through Facebook and Twitter, um, the, the websites are available to you at your convenience 24-7, absolutely no charge at all. Tons of interviews, video, audio, written materials. We fill it up all the time. It's there for you to use. I'm going to now give you very quickly the two websites. The first one is R.D. Wolf. That's my name. R.D. is in David Wolf, W-O-L-2-F. R.D. Wolf with two S dot com. And the other one is Democracy at Work. That's all one word, Democracy at Work dot info. And either of those will allow you to follow all of our work, sign up for the free newsletter, communicate to me any questions, and so on. I do a weekly radio program that's now broadcast on about 50 stations across the United States called Economic Update for an hour once a week. There are lots of ways to connect with what we do, and the website will show you all of them. Okay. And can they find out more about that, um, the, that place in Spain? What was it called again? Mondragon. I'll spell it. M, -O -M as in mother, M-O-N as in nothing, and then dragon, like the, the creature from the deep. Mondragon. It literally means my dragon in, in, in a Romance language. So it's Mondragon. It's a village in Spain. But if you Google Mondragon Cooperative Corporation, there'll be more articles, books, news clippings, 
It'll take you a month to read them. It is a subject that people interested in worker co-ops around the world study. They have a university. They give courses. It's a very successful and very sophisticated uh, example of the success worker co-ops can have. Okay. Well, Richard, thank you very much. Good luck with everything. Thank you for thank what you. you're and doing again, out thank there. Thank you for the opportunity, and I hope we stay in touch. Okay. Happy holidays. You too. Bye-bye. Well, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that uh, as much as I did. Um, I think Richard has showed us uh, some ideas about how employees can uh, actually have a more secure economic future in the years ahead. And uh, uh, maybe now when you're having dinner over the Christmas uh, uh, holidays with Uncle Fred, You've got a lot to talk about now, I think. <laughs> um, and also, too, I think it goes without saying uh, that Richard is probably a Bernie Sanders uh, advocate, uh, as am I and most of the people I know. So uh, I hope you'll stay with me for uh, a bit longer here. I have a few more things for you as we cross uh, the threshold. Into the second half of the show. Um, first of all, I uh, what, what I'd like to share with you is uh, this wonderful article I found on Alternet. It uh, talks about uh, if Christmas is all about magic mushrooms. I thought that might be a lot of fun. We'll close with that. Uh, but um, have a few things uh, uh, for housekeeping. Um, Joe Carson has uh, written a great book called uh, Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path. Uh, it's only come out uh, rather recently, and uh, it's been getting great reviews. Uh, one review called it a scintillating new book. Uh, it has rapturous poetry, erotically charged ritual, glowing surreal paintings, uh, an overall vision of a human culture utterly defined by wilderness, era and Goddess. Uh, those were the words of Stephen Posh, author of Radio Paganistan, Folk Tales of the Urban Witches. Um, also, too, um, in, cele- in Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path, uh, Joe Carson, who's a Feriferia initiate, uh, she unfolds the sumptuously petaled flower of the Feriferian vision with a stunning simplicity and clarity that would have left Fred Adams grinning with boyish delight. Um, This book is uh, actually uh, a reflection of the work of uh, uh, Fred Adams. Uh, For 50 years, uh, he was on the Feriferia path, and uh, uh, he's known for uh, the wonderful rituals and art and uh, everything he brought to this. So it's really a a testament to his work. It's been said that if you buy only one pagan book this year, let it be Celebrate Wildness, in which you'll encounter the Feriferian vision re-articulated for a new century and a new generation. And to find out more about it, uh, you would go to this website, 
uh, Farah, Faria, that's F-E-R-A, F-E-R-I-A dot org. And again, the book is Celebrate Wildness. And I do have a copy of the book. Uh, Joe Carson gifted me with one, and I thank her for that because it is a lovely, lovely, um, what I like to call a coffee table book. It's one of these books you like to put out somewhere and and just kind of thumb through it uh, or take the time to actually read sections. But it's uh, really a great conversation starter. Uh, it's one of those that will really pique the interest, I think, of uh, the guests that might uh, come to your home uh, over the holidays or for ritual and that sort of thing. Uh, also, um, I want to tell you that uh, I've started a new project, and I hope you will um, look into it. Uh, we are doing an audiobook series of my book, Goddess Calling, and we'll be releasing uh, the audio um, reading uh, on YouTube every three weeks or so. Uh, one is already up. And another is probably going to be released, I think, on Monday, and then another one maybe the middle of January. Uh, the first one is uh, separating truth from myth, and I talk about how, um, you know, what we think is our history uh, is is really such a distortion. It's really such an untruth. And um, anyway, you can uh, find that by Googling Karen Tate uh, on YouTube and putting in uh, Goddess Calling uh, audiobook series. Or uh, pretty soon, my um, uh, webmistress, Gina, will have my website updated, and uh, you'll be able to find it uh, by going through my website as, as one door to my YouTube channel. Uh, but I do have two YouTube channels now. Uh, you can you can find it pretty easy, actually. And also, all of this stuff always goes on my Facebook page. So if you scroll down my uh, Karen Tate Facebook page, um, uh, you will find it as well. So uh, right now, as I said, uh, we have out there separating truth from myth, and uh, the next one is going to be Resolutions and Return of the Light. Uh, and I decided to do this because uh, a number of you emailed me and said they want to, that you want to hear from me, uh, but you um, you know sometimes don't have the time to sit down and read a book that uh, you want to listen because you can listen while you're doing other things and continue to multitask. So now uh, as I'm recording these um, uh, these audios of uh, the different chapters of God is Calling, you will in fact now be able to listen. So I hope you enjoy that. And uh, if you uh, can uh, spare some discretionary income to help me uh, keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the air, I would appreciate it. Uh, because honestly, um, most of what I do out there, I do do free, whether it be my radio show uh, or the talks that I give, um, you know, I am not in this for the money. Uh, I, uh, If I were, I would have stopped this a long time ago, quite frankly. And I know this time of year you're tired of hearing people ask you for money. I can't uh, even begin to tell you, um, you know, how many mailings I've got from people, you know, worthy, worthy causes. So I hate to, you know, add me to the list. But if you do value the show... Um, you know, maybe when the holidays are over 
and uh, you know you're not being bombarded by all of these other worthy charities. If you want to help me continue to do uh, all the free stuff I do out there, uh, pay to keep the radio show on the air, um, you know, pay to be able to do all the other things that I do, um, you know, show up at places, give talks, uh, uh, pay my way to conferences to be able to you know get across these new ideas, all of those sorts of things that I actually pay to do to, um, uh, you know, put these different ideas for a new normal out there into the world. They do cost me money. Uh, so if you can spare, uh, you know, a bit for a donation, I would really appreciate it. And I've made it really easy. Uh, you can go to my website, KarenTate.com, go to the Goddess Store page. All the way down at the bottom, the very last PayPal link will allow you to make a monetary donation of any amount. Or if you take advantage of some of the special holiday offers uh, that are going on right now on the um, uh, Holiday Goddess Gift Guide for 2015, I have some great uh, holiday specials where if you buy in a, you know buy several books for a discount, price, you get free things like uh, some of my uh, goddess gift cards. Uh, and of course, everything has been, uh, you know, priced at a discount to encourage, um, you know, to encourage some sales, you know, to bring in some, uh, an income stream, uh, at least a little bit to uh, try to, you know, supplement the things that I do. So uh, I'm not doing everything out of my own pocket. So anyway, um I, I'm sorry I sound like PBS, but, um, you know, we do have to ask. If you don't ask, uh, people assume that uh, you're flush with cash, and that is hardly the case. Flush with cash, I am not. Um, also, too, um, if you haven't noticed, I have been running some special reruns of past shows uh, as sort of a special for the holidays. And, uh, you know, take note of that, if you will. I've been posting I'm on Facebook page. If you're on my email list, uh, you're probably getting notice of them. Um, they're also there on the Voices of the Sacred Feminine um, uh, show page. Uh, some of them have been with, uh, you know, with Margot Adler. I have some coming up, Feminist Fairy Tales with Barbara Walker and Charlene Spretnak. Um at the moment, oh, oh, there's a great one coming up that connects the dots between. This, this is fascinating. Uh, it, it's hard to believe, but it's very, it's, it's fascinating, and it makes so much sense when you hear it. You can actually connect the dots from witch burnings to capitalism. Uh, that one is really cool. Um, so just a, a lot of different reruns that I've been playing every few days in addition to the regular weekly show. Of course, you can find these in the archives yourself, but I've gone back through the archives and pulled out uh, some shows as well as like some holiday shows. Uh, with Selena Fox, you know, with Yuletide Goddesses. I have another one coming up that Roy and I did last Christmas about the legends and lore of uh, the holiday season. So those are all going to be, um, you know, coming up on the show calendar. Every few days there will be another rerun uh, that you can listen to again, or maybe it will be the first time you've heard it. So just know that that's happening, and uh, you can find them easy enough. And if you have any problem with any of this and can't figure out, you know, how to find it, 
please don't hesitate to uh, email me, and uh, I will, you know, help you, you know, direct you uh, and, you know, put you in the right direction. Um, now we only have about 20 minutes left on the show, so I want to share with you this interesting article uh, on Alternet, alternet.org, uh, and it was and uh, the author is David Bierman. And, of course, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read uh, some excerpts. But uh, ethnobotanists are making the case, uh, well, the title is Christmas All About a Magic Mushroom. And ethnobotanists make the case that drugs for recreational and spiritual use were incorporated into pagan winter solstice time celebrations that predated Christmas. And uh, these ethnobotanists, led by James Arthur, make an intriguing case that Christmas traditions owe a lot to the red and white mushroom fly agaric, A-G-A-R-I-C, a.k.a. Amanita muscaria or the psilocybin uh, 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 magic mushroom that inspired Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Symbols like presents, Christmas trees, Santa's suit, and ho-ho-ho are all potentially related to a muscaria, the mushroom. Santa's red, uh, suit is red and white, the colors of a muscaria. Um, or Gordon uh, Wasson observed reindeers have a passion for mushrooms and specifically fly. Uh, you, you know, after they eat the mushrooms, they dance and they prance. Um, they say when reindeer eat the red and white flecked mushrooms or drink the urine of humans or other reindeer that have consumed the, uh, the muscaria mushroom, they act unusual, at least for reindeer. It suggested the story that reindeer pull Santa's sleigh comes from the reindeer's fondness of borrowing on these hallucinogenic mushrooms and their behavior after partaking of the hallucinogen. Uh, as I said before, reindeers prance and dance and fly around and act strange after eating the mushroom. Uh, um, some of the connections attributed to the pagan origins of Christmas are a bit of a logical stretch. Others are pure supposition, but they give pause for thought. Uh, Santa's eight reindeer may symbolize the pagan stag god, and eight is the number for a new beginning. Thor, the Norse god, rode through the sky in a magic chariot pulled by reindeer. The names of the reindeer mirror reindeer behavior post-mushroom eating and suggest pagan gods in nature. Uh, that may just be coincidental, but then again, Donner and Blitzen, or Dutch for thunder and lightning. Actually, Donner was charged, changed from Dunder, and Cupid is a messenger of Eros, an ancient pagan god of love. Uh, this might reflect the use of the shamanic mushroom to enhance the ecstasy of sexual orgasm. Dance and prance or what reindeer do after eating the mushroom. Comet is a celestial body in flight. Vixen may just be there for poetry or may represent uh, witches or vixen magic. Uh, this line of thinking traces the origin of our contemporary flying Santa Claus and his sleigh to the hallucination of flight caused when humans ingest the colorful red and white uh, A. muscaria mushroom. Uh, expositions of this thesis continue that the Santa flying myth relates to the experience of uh, Siberian shamans. 
especially the Koryak people. Uh, to them, uh, the mushroom was a spirit they called Wapak. They believed these spirits would tell any person who ate them, even a layman, what ailed him if he was sick, or they could explain a dream or foretell the future uh, or show the person the upper and lower worlds. Um, really interesting stuff and uh, it goes on for about four pages so I you know uh, can't read the whole thing I think your eyes might uh, glaze over if uh, if I did uh, even though this is uh, quite interesting but um, uh, there's argument uh, for more argument for the mushroom and Christmas connection I'll just uh, you know wrap it with this uh, it says St. Nicholas is the patron saint of children in Siberia. He supplanted the indigenous shamans who used the Amanita mushroom. Um, we already talked about the reindeer who eat the mushroom. They dance and they prance, which was the basis for their presumed flight. Uh, Santa brings presents in his white bag or sack, and the mushrooms are gathered in bags, and um, the uh, the muscaria sprouts out of a white oval sack. The mushrooms are red and white and grow under a green tree. Typically, uh, the red and white mushrooms are dried by stringing them on the hearth of the fireplace, uh, like Christmas stockings, which are red and white and hung on the hearth in the same way. And then the virgin birth is symbolic for the seedless germination pattern of the mushroom to the ancient mind with no microscope to see the spores its appearance was said to be miraculous so it's fun these are some fun things um um you know, and there's more to it, and uh, I would uh, I would highly recommend going to alternet.org and uh, look for the article dated December 14th. Is Christmas all about magic mushrooms? Just making the connection between the mushrooms and all of those other um, ideas that we have around Christmas kind of ties into that. Um, um, message that I was just telling you about in my book, Goddess Calling, Separating Truth from Myth, doesn't it? Yes, indeedy. And one of the reasons I um, did that on the audio book series first is because um, starting with Thanksgiving through Christmas, we are just surrounded, you know, we are you know, knee deep, shoulder deep, eyeball deep, and all of these different uh, ideas that, um, uh, you know, these myths, these half-truths, these distortions, these, um, you know, all of these different ideas that uh, maybe started with one thing, but then, uh, you know, as time went on, uh, you know, the story changed and we lost the original idea and it became uh, it became something else, you know, that maybe a red and white mushroom could have been, um, you know, what led us to, you know, some of the Santa myths. Anyway, I think it's fun. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you can look at this as, you know, either just, um, you know, how stories can uh, change and morph, uh, you know, from a fun perspective, or you can also get serious about it and, you know, realize that, 
Thanksgiving, for instance, you know, how it's whitewashed, uh, the genocide of a culture. So, you know, you can get heavy about it or you can stay light, you know, or do a combination of both, whatever uh, whatever your heart desires. So anyway, that about does it for us tonight. I hope you will most definitely um, look up Richard Wolf, The Economist, uh, maybe play uh, the show over again, listen to it several times, uh, or go to his website. There's so much good stuff there. Uh, listen to him when he comes on PBS. Um, maybe if you have TiVo or something like that, um, you know, put in his name so that when he uh, comes up, you can listen to him. I promise you, he is so interesting. You will be mesmerized. Uh, it is not boring stuff. We need so desperately to take responsibility for our own education because we see what happens when we don't. You know, we are just fed stuff the media wants us to know. We are fed stuff the church wants us to know. We are fed stuff academia wants us to know. And you know what? Most of the time, it is not in our best interest. So so we have to stop that. We have to take responsibility for our own educations because we have to be able to be critical thinkers. We have to uh, know what's best for us and not take the word of people who might not have our best interest at heart. And with all that said, I hope you will also, if you haven't already, go to Bernie Sanders' website. And uh, in the coming weeks, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about Bernie Sanders and uh, things you might want to know about him if you're still riding the fence about if you think he's the one to vote for. And, you know, if you haven't been voting for him uh, or, or if you haven't intended to vote for him simply because you think he cannot win, you know what, just throw that idea in the garbage can because that uh, that is what they would like you to think. Because if millions of people stand together this will happen, and we will start to change the world. We will start to change the culture. And as you heard Richard Wolf say tonight, you know, people are, are ripe for this right now. You know, they have seen what's going on does not work, and I really do believe that Bernie Sanders is the start of um, – change here in this country that we also desperately need because it can't keep going the way it's going uh it just cannot too many people are suffering and it will only get worse so okay i'm off my soapbox for now thank you so much for listening uh i appreciate you tuning in next week uh i, I mean every week and please uh next week uh is Rianne eisler uh, on Tuesday, though, uh, we, the show will not be on Wednesday. It will be Tuesday because of uh, the Christmas holiday. And we will be talking about domination and partnership and caring economics. And, um, you know, it's a great bookend to tonight's show. So thank you so very much, uh, dear listeners. And uh, I will close tonight's show uh, with the song that I uh, was about to play when I thought I was going to have to call Richard when I didn't see him on the switchboard. This is by Celia, and it's called I Am Isis, Name Your Price. Enjoy, and uh, come back to me Tuesday. And remember, all the special reruns. Don't miss those. I am Isis. I am
When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood. 